Welcome to Adventure Rider Radio Raw, a roundtable-style spin-off from Adventure Rider Radio that we do each month about motorcycle travel. And on this episode of Raw, episode 85, we're talking about essential skills, essential motorcycle travel skills that every traveler really should have before leaving on a motorcycle adventure. All that and a whole bunch more coming up. But before we get going, I want to give a shout out to some people who've helped the show incredibly this past month with $50 or more. Here we go. Edwin B. Medlin, Doug Smith, Albert Peterson, Terence Lyons, Peter Ardern, Wayne Kauf, Peter Weston, Michelle Harp, John Stanhouse, Dino Kubik, and John Sirabassi from Emmaus Moto Tours. It's so great to have people that appreciate what we're doing here and show that appreciation by supporting. Now, anything $50 or more gets you a shout out, just like you heard me do right now. Anything $10 or more gets you a sticker. There's a whole bunch of things you can do, and we would really appreciate it if you'd look at our patron account and consider becoming one of our patron supporters. All that at our website, adventureriderradio.com. Now, in case uh, Raw is a new discovery for you, we do another show, our flagship show called Adventure Rider Radio. That comes out every week. That's all available from our website or anywhere you find podcasts, but drop our website, adventureriderradio.com. Now, coming up, we're talking about essential skills for the motorcycle traveler or that the motorcycle traveler ought to have before they leave home. Here we go for Adventure Rider Radio Raw, February 2023. Recorded live from the Canoe S Media Studio deep in the boreal forest of North America, this is Adventure Rider Radio Raw, roundtable discussions about motorcycles, travel, and anything else that crosses our mind, completely unscripted, raw, and personal. My name is Jim Martin, and today at the virtual roundtable afforded through the magic of the internet, I am joined by my regular esteemed Overland co-host. I'm going to kick it off with Shirley Hardy Ricks and Brian Ricks in Australia. Good morning to the both of you. Good morning, um, and thank you for the time change. We had a sleep in today. It's yeah, glorious. Two cups of coffee and all the rest. <laughs> no, it, it took quite a bit for me to get that time change too. So I yeah, know. I'm, I'm glad you appreciate it. I know you it. had to put a lot of work in. <laughs> but uh, yeah, things fine down the golf fields. The sun's shining and it's going to be hot and we're heading into very hot for the next few days up into yeah. high 30s. But um, well, it's, summer. it's going to be 95 today and possibly over 100 tomorrow and the next day. So wow. early morning riots. Well, I heard Michelle Lamfer there in the in the Black Hills of South Dakota. Hello, Michelle. Hi there. And yes, it's uh, I'm doing the math on the uh, Celsius versus Fahrenheit because when they were talking about being in the 30s down under, I was thinking, oh, well, we're in the 30s where I'm at too. But, <laughs> but <I'm> <laughs> different <laughs> scale. <laughs> right. Yeah. And it's going to snow here today. In fact, I think I'm I'm in the Black Hills of South Dakota. It's um, winter, of course, the peak of winter. And we've got at the altitude that I'm at in the Black Hills, which is around 1,700 meters or so, we'll have snow into May for sure and sometimes into late May. So um, I'm not anywhere near the end of winter here, but mm. that's okay. That's not too bad. When was the last time you were on a bike? Uh, November. So you didn't get your December ride no. or your January ride in? Oh. No, I think once I moved up, Another thousand meters vertically. I gave up on that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I Good can thinking. understand that. That would make sense. Let's bring in Grant Johnson in British Columbia, Canada. Grant, hello. Hello. How's everybody doing? Uh, what we're finding here is, is I'm struggling to not do the usual Western Canadian over Eastern Canadian thing of 
the flowers and bulbs are coming up. <laughs> the buds are on the trees. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I did it, didn't I? You just did. I've lived on, on both spots, as you know. So I'm, I, I know the I know both feelings. And I love that early summer. Well, the lack of winter on the coast in British Columbia. Yeah. But, you know, there's, there's bonuses to being in the freezing cold. Like, for instance... <sighs> I'm going to get back to you on that, Grant. He's thinking about Yeah, I knew you would. <laughs> it was going to be a struggle. No, it, it's still pretty cold out here. I mean, it's only seven degrees and there was fresh snow on the mountains a couple of days ago. So we still get get the cold. I mean, I can see a whole range of mountains from where I am in Chilliwack. But yeah, it's it's looking good and there is there is hope. You know, I, can, I just wrote somebody this morning and said, I'm, I'm just looking forward to spring. It's actually coming. It's kind of thinking about being here. So mm-hmm. for those of us in the north... There are signs. It's coming. Mm-hmm. Sam Manicom is in the uh, south uh, of France, I believe, enjoying the sunshine and heat. <laughs> S- Sam, hello. <laughs> hello, everybody. Um, this is for, I'm talking to you from a very spring-like Devon in the UK. Now, that's not Devon, France. Um, but I hope I'm not jinxing, jinxing things because not only are we getting much longer days now, but we're getting loads more sunshine. It's really nice. Life is pretty darn busy at the moment. Um, Libby's suspension is wound up and she's loaded up with books and T-shirts and banners because tomorrow morning I'm heading off up to London for the London Motorcycle Show. Oh, and it's right. really nice to be wow. back up there again. Mm. Um, in the meantime, it's great to be back on Raw with everybody. And um, wherever you're listening to the show, greetings. So um, for today, we're talking about skills for motorcycle overlanding and why you need them before you go or which skills you'll need. So our discussion is is sort of centered around motorcycle travel skills that someone would benefit from or moreover really should have, I guess, before leaving on a motorcycle adventure. Now, for the scope of this conversation, what we're talking about, I guess, longer trips that go from weeks to months, maybe even years, and in particular, perhaps ones that you'll have to cross borders for. So we can we can talk about those sorts of things as well. And we'll talk about these skills. So what I was thinking is here, to begin with, let's turn the spotlight around and begin by discussing a few shortcomings from experience. Now, I didn't tell you guys <laughs> that I wanted to do this, but so I'm thinking that what everybody could do is just very quickly, maybe maybe think back to that first trip that you did. Just mention what the plan was, what the duration was going to be, and what single thing, one concept, one one idea, fact, understanding that you didn't have or didn't know before you left, but now in hindsight, feel that you should have known or should have had before you left. So now I know you didn't prep for this, but I'm going to give you a few minutes. Okay, so now we're going to go. <laughs> so, <laughs> so who wants to go first, Michelle? uh sure yeah i I mean i have one that definitely jumps out for me and it's it's one where i just sort of have to say you know it's it was a hard lesson learned but when i had planned to do uh the two-year ride and i preface that back up a second and say when i planned to ride to ushuaia the plan was to take a year um and it didn't turn out that way because as i put my belongings in storage, did my prep work, packed all my gear, la, 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 got on the road and thought, all right, I've got a full year ahead of me and I'm excited. I'm going east on the Trans-Labrador Highway first, turning south to come back through the U.S. and then head for Central and South America. 
And I've, I'm looking at the long range, 52 weeks ahead of me and 13 days into the trip, lucky number 13, I wrecked on the Translab and broke my leg. And that um, for me was related to just not having enough riding skills, um, especially relative to wind and crosswind and gravel and some off-road riding. And further than that, really not recognizing how tired I was. I was, I was not um, physically up to speed and riding and, you know, 14 or 13 days straight, I was riding long days. It was peak summer daylight hours. And I don't think I'd taken all of that into consideration. So I was riding something like 10 or 12 hours a day and really just, you know, being on high alert status because I was in a different environment. I was on uh, tougher terrain and riding, um, speaking a foreign language because we were in Quebec. So of course that's foreign. So <laughs> I you were um, you're in Canada. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Speaking uh, Canadian English. Yeah. Um, yeah. So no, I, I think a couple of things, really the writing skills are, are something that I, I wish in hindsight, I would have really focused on that. I had done some gravel riding in South Dakota before I left, but not nearly enough. Um, but also just kind of be, learning to be patient with myself and being aware um, self-aware. I think that was something that really comes to mind. Those two played a role in my accident and in, in the end, everything was fine. But yeah, certainly that, that was something I learned a couple of valuable lessons from. 13 days. It was usually the 13th day of riding. Yes. Were you already into a rhythm at that point? Did you, did you start to feel like, Hey, this, this feels right now? Cause you know, we've talked about this before, how I think Sam always says it's like three weeks or something like that, but did you yeah. find a rhythm at that point or was it before? No, I, I hadn't. I mean, I don't think that I'd reached a rhythm yet. I felt like it was really a push. I was running against some timelines with um, my travel companions visa. So we were in a rush. And I really, it, it's funny, at the time I was closing on a sale on my house, but I was doing that all remotely. So I was checking emails and I had stuff in my head, you know, still wrapping up details of kind of closing up my life in South Dakota while planning to be gone for a year. So I just had a lot of stuff in my head and I don't think I was, I really had reached a stride or, or had any kind of rhythm yet. It was still too rushed and too fast. So if you were planning for this now, let's say you hadn't done that trip, but you know what you mm -hmm. know now, what would you do differently then? Not the whole thing, but just for those two things. Uh, well, well, certainly be very self-aware of how tired I was. The morning that I had the accident, I was really tired. I hadn't slept. We'd had a lot of problems with mosquitoes. At the time, there were some fires up in northern Labrador. So um, we had run into issues where there were road closures and blockades and some convoys to go through some of that area. And when we were camping, just the really heavy smoke and the black flies and all of that kind of kept you from sleeping well. So I hadn't been sleeping good for I'd say four or five days before my accident. I wasn't rested. I wasn't on my game. And when I was riding challenging roads that were challenging for me on a good day, I should have recognized that being tired and, you know, kind of really getting into this long, longer term travel, that adjustment period was still, you know, there for me. And I, I wasn't patient enough with myself and I was really pushing it a little bit too hard. So I think being aware of that and, and, and really stepping back and, and saying um, to myself, but also to my travel companion, uh, this is a bit too fast for me and I'm going to need to take a day off or a few hours off or something. So one, recognizing that and being able to communicate that. Um, but two, 
definitely, I would have done more in different kinds of writing and probably gone to some writing schools um, to gain some some more confidence and gain some more skills before hitting the road. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but you did say everything turned out fine. And it's always interesting, isn't it? How it maybe <laughs> it wasn't as you planned, but it did turn out fine. You had a wonderful experience. You wrote a book about it. I mean, you know, it's I a, did. It, it turned yeah. out to be something incredible. So, so that's interesting. Cool. So, Shirley and Brian. Um, the way I look at it is it's very different for everybody. Like what Michelle was talking about, she'd prefer more motor, uh, motorcycle skills and things like that. And I know Sam hadn't uh, ridden a great deal before he's headed off on his journey. For me, um, I've been riding all my life, basically, and I, I felt I had the motorcycle skills. But I didn't have the the aspect of it's a complete change of life style, you know. We talk about going through the change of life. When you go on a big trip, it's as if you're completely changing your lifestyle. You're shutting down, as as Michelle spoke about, shutting down one part of your life and starting another. And it's exciting, it's challenging, it's different, but you've got to have the right mindset. And, you know, we all lead, most of us lead very, very busy lives and uh, it's it's pressure, 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 pressure of work or whatever it might be. And once you hit the road, there shouldn't be any pressure. The pressure comes off, and it's but it's different. You know, you've got to be aware of your surroundings all the time. Um, um, Shirley is one that likes to have everything planned, and when you go on a journey for a long time, you can't really plan it that much. We found on our first trip that she was getting stressed because she didn't have a bed to, to tomorrow night, you know, when we're traveling through Europe. Well, in the end, we sat down and we spoke about it and I said, just chill out. We'll, you know, we'll, we'll ride for two hours, three hours and four hours maybe and pull up and and find somewhere. So I, I really think it's, it's that attitude of, Changing uh, what your perception of what life is all about is really important. And that brings with it, um, you develop um, a laissez-faire attitude, more patience uh, with people. Um, Yeah, the traffic sometimes can get a little bit hard for you to to negotiate. But I can remember um, using those skills when we travelled in Vietnam later on, you know, you sit there and you'll watch the traffic and work out how it works. So anyway, that's just my thoughts. Sure. The, the um, one thing that Michelle talked about, and that's the constantly going every day and needing to move on, and that was my problem. So prior to planning, you really need to think about it is going to be a different mindset. And while you've got a year on the road, you don't have to really worry about that 365th day, worry about tomorrow. And that mindset is something you can try and plan for before the trip, but a lot of the time it just happens while you're traveling. Right. Yeah. But you could do that in your planning, though. Like instead of, we've heard this before, I know Grant's mentioned it before, about people who plan to ride every day and they have a very tight yeah. schedule where what you're saying is you would do that in the planning. You'd say, okay, well, let's not get too bent out of shape about where we're going to be on a date. And, and you could, that, so that way you're prepping it in advance. Exactly. Yeah. Yes, you can do that, but it's it's easy to say and hard to do sometimes yeah. when you when you've been doing it for you know decades and then changing your mindset completely. Because with a trip like that that, that you guys have done, or many of the trips that, that you've all done, 
there's a lot that's out of your control, right? I mean, you have very little control, really. I mean, you have limited control over over your timing. Yes, that's true. Um, and, and when you get time constraints uh, like visas and and uh, and broken legs and yeah, things like <laughs> yeah, that. Well, right. you get, sometimes you just got to roll with the punches. You know, we had to apply for our visa for Iran twice, and and, and you've got to do things like that sometimes and just roll with it. Mm-hmm. And and for people who are um, not so much control freaks, but you know, really, really, really well organised people, which is most of us. Um, sometimes that's hard to do. Mm-hmm. Sam, how about you? <laughs> Something you should have understood or, or known before you left, and now in hindsight can look back and say, you know, I really should have done this, knowing this. I can't remember who said this, but there's a quote that's always stayed with me, and that is, you could fill a library with the things he didn't know. <laughs> <laughs> and that fits yeah. very nicely with with another saying ignorance is bliss but actually is it there were so many things that I didn't know when I set off um, to, to ride across Europe and, and down to Africa um, I really didn't know what I was doing yeah I'd backpacked and I'd hitched and I'd hiked and ridden bicycles and all of that sort of thing and I had learned a lot of the, the travel skills but as far as the motorcycle travel skills I was so wet behind the years it was running down my shoulders it was a good job I had a waterproof jacket on I mean there were so many what I think one of the biggest mistakes that I made particularly um going across Europe which was such a wake-up call for me um was really think about what you're doing you don't know what you're doing so take the time out before you make a decision to do something you can't follow your instincts because your instincts are crook you haven't formed them yet um you've got to let the the skills the the ability to do things without without thinking about them so hard you've got to let those grow and that just comes through experience and just i did all sorts of stupid things like um, I was wild camping, middle of the winter, the, the, coming across France. The ground was either snowy or it was, you know, thick frost. You couldn't tell in fields what the surfaces were like. And of course, I was wild camping, so oh, there's an open gate. I'll go in there. Parked in the entrance. Yeah, this looks all right. Started riding across the field, and wallop, underneath all of the tussocks of grass, it had been ploughed, hadn't it? I didn't see that. And of course, there I am in the middle of nowhere, in, in with my bike um, on its side, but with his feet down in a, in a in a, a furrow and yeah well let's put it this way I didn't do that again and there was another time and you sort of going through the mountains um, in Italy and I just happened to catch the glimpse of a castle on the top of a hill but in my rear view mirror now just just because I was on a motorcycle, I could pull across to the side of the road and there were these armco barriers and a steep drop down on the other side and when I put my foot down um, it was gravel. I hadn't learned to see where I was putting my feet down. And of course, my foot shot out from underneath me and bang, the bike down, went down on the, the steel barrier. And I couldn't get it out. Um, I just could not get this bike out. And I ended up having to flag cars down. Well, let's put it this way. That was another lesson that I learned really, really well that time. <laughs> and of course, I was completely overloaded. And we all do that, don't we? Um, experienced riders, inexperienced riders, uh, I mean. Experienced riders, Brian Shirley, you knew so much better. Um, Grant, Susan, you knew so much better. Michelle and I, well, I hope this isn't an insult, Michelle, but you and I had to learn that sort of thing, didn't we? No, what do you really, really need? 
Um, and it had never occurred to me, get down to the bottom, of, uh, you know, halfway across Europe. And if you're not using stuff, then send it home already. Um, so, yeah, it's just being so wet behind the ears, I think, was the biggest challenge to me to begin with. It seems to me that inexperienced riders tend to overpack and they're surprised that they're overpacked, whereas experienced riders tend to overpack, but they're not surprised that they overpacked. Yeah, that's an interesting way of putting it. Yeah. I, I like that. Um, mm. but I would also say that the experienced riders are more willing, more readily to get rid of the crap that they overpacked than the inexperienced rider is because the inexperienced rider thinks, oh, well, I, I made a serious decision about that and I really thought about it and I figured I really needed it. So I will need it. <laughs> But Two Grant, years later, they're still saying that. Grant, I agree with you. But the other thing is when you're completely an, uh, a novice, you try to counteract the things that you don't know by having the right equipment to be able to deal with that situation if yep. you find mm. yourself in it. And Which that, of course, sensible. is it. The question is, is that word if? Yeah, it mm. is sensible. It is, but, it's a sensible yeah, well, approach. But, but basically, Sam, what you've just described there is that when I asked you for like one idea, fact, concept, whatever, that you didn't have before you left, basically what you're saying is you had none. You needed everything. <laughs> uh, yeah, I was completely ignorant. Okay, so um, that's that's a that's an easy one. We can we can cure that in a few minutes here. But <laughs> that's, that's, yeah, but I did want to give Sam some credit. He had done some international travel before, so he had a clue about that. He was more prepared, yeah, perhaps yeah, yeah. for border crossings and finding accommodations in strange places and stuff than most people would would have had experience with. Absolutely. So, well, that brings up made a thought. A then, Sam, could it be that? that was really what made you leave the way you did because you're thinking, well, you've already done all this. How hard can it be with a motorcycle? One of the reasons that I chose a motorcycle was because I had traveled in the, in the different ways and I was looking for something new. I wanted to have a new challenge. Um, I wanted to, yeah, riding a bicycle is absolutely brilliant. I loved it. Um, but going up hills is kind of hard work and I was fed up with doing that. Traveling with a backpack, that's absolutely great, but lugging all that weight around, I'm sure I told you guys this story before, but the first um, big hitchhiking trip that I did, um, I was up in my parents' house in my bedroom and I realized that I had far too much stuff. And so I'd made the two piles, must have pile and yeah, it would be nice, but don't really have to have it. And I got it all sorted out and I was really happy with how I'd got it and repacked it in the rucksack and was just standing back and thinking, yeah, okay, this works. When my mother walked in and she saw the pile of stuff on the floor and she said, what, what's all that? why aren't you taking this? You're going to need all of those things. <laughs> so blow me, they all went back in the rucksack. And so I decided to hitchhike around Europe and this rucksack was so heavy, I was having to get the truck drivers to come out of their cabs to give me a hand to lift it up into the cab because <laughs> I was So did that get mailed yep. home, all that stuff that was on the floor? No, actually, I either sold it or I gave it away. Oh, um, selling it, well, there's an I'd idea. Like yeah, I kind of like, you know, you meet another traveler and they, they need something and you spent £10 on something. Well, yeah, give it to them for a quid. And there were times, other times when I gave people things because they'd help me. And yeah, it was just a little present. And having all that stuff, you could afford to do that, I guess. So, Absolutely. So there, there might don't be a bonus. laugh at me. Don't laugh at me, but, you know, I'm sort of a really young guy and I'm thinking that it's actually very cool to be able to find myself at beach parties on the Mediterranean um, and to be the guy that has the music. 
So I was carrying a cassette player and 25 cassettes. <laughs> and bags. <Wow>. Absolutely. <laughs> you know that I sweated for that and I never, ever had one single party where I was the only guy with the music. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> the intent was good. Let's hear Grant's. Grant, how about you? That single oh. idea, something that you left without. Better language skills would probably be my single biggest flaw. Um, I hate to admit it, but I am not good with languages at all. I don't hear it well, clearly. It doesn't penetrate well. And I really struggle with pronunciation. I, I should, probably should admit this, but I will anyway. I passed grade 12 high school French because I promised my teacher I wouldn't take it anymore in the future. <laughs> wow yeah it's it's really sad i mean i can survive in france i can get a meal i can get a bathroom etc and the same thing uh, tunisia uh, is, has a lot of french and it was handy there what i did have but it, it's really poor and i really struggle to understand what they're saying they're they're speaking about three times too fast um and I learned Spanish along the way. I learned a little bit of Arabic and I learned a little bit of Swahili. You know, you pick up bits and pieces. And I really regret that I didn't a, have more when I, before I left. I mean, some, the, the top 10 words in the languages of the countries I'm going to would have been really useful. Um, and that I didn't work harder at it on the way. I, I mean, I did stop in some place in South America. I forget where now. Uh, uh, Central America. And took a, a two weeks of Spanish, and that helped. I mean, it made a big difference. But then I hit South America and discovered that Central American Spanish is not cent South American Spanish. <laughs> it's not the same. Nope. Yeah, I went from, I th I'm doing all right here, to what? <laughs> <laughs> the, the saving grace for me, and probably part of the reason why my Spanish is so bad, is because Susan took Spanish from like grade three or four. She lived in Colombia when she was nine and 10 years old and then took Spanish right through high school oh. and speaks very good Spanish. Um, you know, like people think that she's native Spanish speaker. Uh, her accent is so good. And, and you just step back, let her talk. <laughs> not my problem. <laughs> I remember one incident where we got stopped by a policeman somewhere. I can't remember if it was a border check or what, but I just remember the... the he, the, the guy would ask me a question in Spanish and Susan would answer in Spanish and he would ask me a question in Spanish and she would answer. And then he said, what, doesn't he speak? Not Spanish. <laughs> Grant, if it makes you feel any better, I did exactly the same thing with Birgit. She'd studied Spanish in school. And when we arrived in um, Argentina, we made a conscious decision that she was going to do the talking because mm -hmm. she would understand what was going on. Yep. And um, I took a bit of a backseat and I really, really shouldn't have done. I should have done what I now know is, yep, learn those 10 words of um, the, the key words, the hello, the please, the thank you, and also learn 10 words to do with my motorcycle. If I had those 20 words, then I could build from there. Um, but hey, that's a hindsight thing altogether, isn't it? Yeah, I remember Greg Frazier's uh, famous phrase. Um, I can say beer, bathroom, food, sleep in 10 different languages. It shows mm -hmm. his priorities. <laughs> yes, beer was at the top of the list. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's fair enough. So, yeah, I think 
getting some basic language skills is, is really, really important and actually working at it when you're out on the road. I mean, you can fake it and cheat and be lazy about it and struggle, but if you really sit down and try and learn a little bit, you know, take a, a Spanish language book with you or something for whatever, wherever you're going, just to kind of work it through for 15 minutes a night, pick up one word a day and the difference it'll make to your, to your enjoyment of the people, what you're, where you're going, what you're seeing and understanding of the country. It just makes it so much better. It really makes a difference. The, the tricky part is though, Grant, you get those words into your head and you can even put them in the right order in a sentence. And then the person you're talking to will confuse you with someone who actually speaks the language. <laughs> and they will answer you as if you speak the language and you have absolutely no idea what they said. Yeah. Yeah. And well, the, first, the first phrase we learned in, in um, South America was must espacio, por favor, mm-hmm. more slowly, yeah, please. Yeah. Because We're once they start speaking at, at pace, you're gone. Yeah. Yes, but you're <laughs> I, I think another um, trap nowadays is, is all these apps you can use to, for translation. But mm-hmm. really, um, the people, um, you, you get more out of people if they think that you are making an effort yes. and uh, they, they will compensate for you in that regard. So yeah. I, I, in current day, I would say don't fall into that trap of just taking the app and thinking you'll be fine. Yeah, use it as a backup and use it to learn. Yeah. You, know, you can always ask yourself in your room at night, well, what was that word? I was trying to find out what it was and look it up in your little app. Ah, oh, yeah, okay, now I got it. Um, I know I've told this story before, but just for those who haven't, uh, we went into, we were crossing from Libya into Egypt, and there's a long, 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 long line of trucks. But as you do on a motorcycle, you, we went right up to the head of the line to the gate, and I asked the guy in English, because I didn't speak very much Arabic. And I said, you know, what's what's the delay and how long is it going to be and stuff like that? And uh, he said, well, it's going to it's going to be an hour or two, you know, there, and, and in, speaking in English and you just have to wait. And I said, shukran, which is Arabic for thank you. And he looked at me and his eyes went wide and his face lit up and he said, ah, you speak Arabic. Welcome to my country. Yeah. And it opened the gate. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 Can I share with you an app story, a a generational gap? Our um, granddaughter is going to Europe on a school excursion. Hmm. We used to go to Warragamba Dam, but there you go. They go to Europe now as school excursions. (laughs) And she was talking about how she accidentally downloaded an app onto her phone using her mother's account. I don't know how you do that. Um, Which would give her translation to French and German uh, for her trip. And I said to her, you know, I've got the most amazing collection of phrase books. So I went and got her a French, German, a Turkish one because they're going to the Gallipoli battlefields and an Italian one just in case. And in the car drive home, apparently she did not say a word and she was just looking at these phrase books and seeing how easy it is to work out what you need to say just with the old-fashioned written word in a book. And she is now a devotee of phrase books. Oh, oh nice. fantastic. Nice. That's yeah. a really yeah, good cool, point, you know, because it's it's almost like the GPS. The GPS, I always say it's like looking at your at your world through a straw. And that and that could be the same thing for a translation app. I mean, you're only hearing and seeing exactly what you need in that moment, in the moment of pressure. Whereas the phrase book, you can look through it and sort of peruse. Yeah, it's easy to browse and plan a book. Ahead. It's really hard to browse yeah. an app. 
Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. You know, it's, it's interesting that you're saying this because I feel the same way about guidebooks. Now, I haven't bought a guidebook for quite some time, but I used to like the the early days um, shoe print um, guidebooks and so on. Shoestring, that's it. Thank you. Yeah. Um, and I, I loved them just sort of, I, I, sometimes I wouldn't bother reading a novel for weeks because I was so enthralled by what I was sitting back in my comfortable chair and reading in this. And I just wouldn't get the same sensation if I was sitting looking at a computer screen or my phone. And of course, you know, you've got the margins in a guidebook, haven't you? So you can be jotting notes and when other people say to you, oh, when you're there, go and stay at this place or You've got to go down that street. It's amazing. Or the the wall art on that street or whatever else it might be. You've got the margins. And yeah, well, um, maybe I'm just old school, but I... I no, no, no. I, I agree. For, for, for Christmas, Shirley got a guidebook to Egypt, which is our next little journey. So, and she's been devouring it over the last <laughs> month. Mm, nice. Yep. Got the you, little you post-it know, notes on where the craft shops are. <laughs> <laughs> no, at the risk of, of braiding this conversation further, I read a lot of books on Kindle just because it's convenient because it's with my phone. So if I ever get stuck somewhere waiting for anything, I can pull out my phone and read right then. I like that a lot. But just recently I, I got a print book and it arrived in the mail and man, is it nice. It's those little things you sort of forget. One of the things I really like is looking at a certain page. I'll be reading something and I'll reference something further on or back in the book. And it's something I never do on the Kindle because you just can't do it. It's not, it's not convenient to do. Whereas the book, I put a little bookmark in, you know, and I flip back to that page and I flip back to a, a part at the front of the book or the back of the book or whatever. It's just, it's, I don't know. Anyway, I know I'm, I'm sort of extolling the virtues of, of printed materials. Um, and that's not the point of our conversation, but yeah, I, I tend to really agree with that. Jim, um, you are absolutely forgiven here. Please keep extolling the virtues of books because you know, a lot of people on your team are really happy that you are. But no, seriously, um, there is something very nice about the tangibility of a book. And I actually like the way books smell when you first open them up. It's the little things like that. I can't get that on my Kindle. Right. Yes. Is that part of your uh, look when you're looking for a new publisher to make sure that their books smell right? Oh, absolutely. No, I I always buy um, several books from a publisher. Hang on a minute. That's me. I buy several of my own books. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. (laughs) Sam has a nose for the written word. Oh, I can't believe it. Why did I do that? (laughs) Just going to open up Pandora's box here. Well, um, I want to dig in a little bit further here and and see if we can't sit down and sort of run through a whole bunch of things, not just things with your experience. Grant, did you have something you wanted to add? I just was thinking, I've, I've figured out I was thinking about all of this and looking at it. I'd made some a few brief notes and thinking, you know, it's critical for the listener to keep in mind at this point before we really get started that we're going to talk about a lot of things you should do. Like we just talked about language. You should learn a few other words, et cetera. But you need to decide kind of what, what's your comfort level. And like we've mentioned before about stuff, just because it's in the catalog or on the wall display at the camping store doesn't mean you must have it or even need it. So the ideally fully prepared traveler would probably do all of the things we'll talk about, but only you can decide what's important to you. And finally, remember, none of us did all of this stuff. <laughs> you can go without some of it or even most of it, as some of us have learned the hard way, um, and still make it survive and have a wonderful trip. So. Don't feel like this is a, a recipe that you have to follow in, in, in great detail. Take what, take what works for you. 
I'm going to name drop here because there's a couple that pops into my mind that are exactly like that, Ashley and Donna. Now, they're a couple of Brits, and I met them in um, Malawi, down by Lake Malawi. And they were the most unprepared people that I had met, other than me, um, for a trip up through Africa. Their luggage, they had um, well, they had a, a BMW R100GS, perfect choice, excellent, love that. <laughs> Their luggage, um, one side, they had a pannier, and the other side, they had a jerry can instead of a pannier. So 25 litre jerry can. Um, all of their belongings, for the two of them, fitted in that one pannier and a roll bag behind them. And that was all they had. Ashley was a completely inexperienced motorcyclist. Um, but the two of them had just stacks of enthusiasm and confidence that whatever they tried, they could make it through. But the one thing they really had that made their trip a success was that they had pots of common sense. And that combination, ignorance, a lot of the ignorance that they had just disappeared under the, the power of the common sense they had. And they were a complete joy because they were unencumbered. Um, and they were just, uh, they're going to hate me if they ever hear this, but they were like a couple of puppy dogs with their tails <laughs> waggling enthusiastically. <laughs> everything they had a go at. They were a complete joy to be around. So you don't have to have everything. You don't have to know everything. Um, it depends on who you are. And yeah, well, I suppose a certain amount of luck comes into it too, doesn't it? Yeah, and attitude. That's the big thing, I think, that yeah. is probably number one for all of it. And I've always thought that if somebody is willing to go on one of these big trips, they probably have a better attitude than somebody who thinks it's insane, crazy or whatever, and they're going to do better. Mm -hmm. But you've got to give yourself room, give yourself the it's, it's OK to have a problem. It's not going to be a disaster. It's not going to be the end of the world if things go wrong or I don't have something. I will survive. There's people out there. There's a road, et cetera, et cetera. It's OK not to be perfect. It's OK. Just well get out there and do it. Mm -hmm. yeah. We do hear the stories of, of people who do incredible things or ridiculous things, however you want to look at it, and go totally unprepared and end up having a, an amazing trip. And, you know, they have stories to tell about it and, and everyone's all excited about it. That That's that that it certainly happens, but we often talk about doing your due diligence, which I think we all agree, or most of us agree, that um, that's a sensible thing to do with just about anything, is do your due diligence, unless you want that kind of adventure. So I think that really the point of what we're doing here is to sort of map out a little bit of, of, of due diligence that you should be doing, or at least considering before you go. Hey, if you choose not to, I don't know, research borders before you go and you're going to ride the, the length of South America or, or something like that, and you want to just arrive and figure it out, that's great. That's, that's your thing. But as far as the due diligence part, I mean, I, I think that's sort of what we're after here is, is those list of things that you probably should consider. I totally agree with you, Jim. And when you when you head out, having done your due diligence, um, the world of opportunities is so much wider because you know so much more and therefore oh, yeah. you recognize opportunities and mm -hmm. you have the confidence to have a go at them because not all of us can be Ashley and Donna. Most of us don't have that level of confidence. We want to know more because that makes us feel like we can. Mm-hmm. I, I think one of the most important things you've got to do nowadays is work out if you can get through places. I, I had an email from a guy just recently, oh, I'm going to ride from Melbourne to London, I'm going to go, you know, island hopper through Indonesia and I'm going to go up through 
uh, get to Thai border, ride through Myanmar, get into Bangladesh, you know, do this, do that. And I said, mate, no. <laughs> if you thought about how you're going to do that, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm just going to ride. Well, yeah, but, you know, how are you going to get across into Myanmar? You do realise there's a, a civil war going on there. The border's been shut for years and it's really, really difficult to travel through there. You know, you've got to have a, a, a little bit of pre-planning like that. I think that's, in this current age, I think that's one of the most important things you've got to look at. Mm-hmm. And it's very yep. easy, of course, because of the, the technology. But okay, let's let's take a break here. I got a couple of things that, that I want to talk about. When we come back, let, let's dig in and, and sort of pull this thing apart and, and get some more details to it. This episode is supported by freshtracks.co.uk. Freshtracks have been around since the 90s, and what they do is they work with companies or groups to inspire, motivate, challenge, and build communication skills through team-building exercises. They work with companies like Mars, Pfizer, Yahoo, Comic Relief. Have a look at freshtracks.co.uk. Well, anyone that has a chain-drive motorcycle should listen to this. Scott Euler makes automated chain oiler systems. Now, in my mind, the biggest reason for looking at this is not necessarily to save you the work of oiling your chain. It does that. It does save you from having to do it manually. But but I think that more importantly is the frequency and consistency. The Scott Euler ensures your chain is always lubricated because it's automatic. And the difference in chain life you get from an automated oiling system is absolutely massive. I mean, I've seen some incredible results where people are getting up to seven times what they were getting before they started this automated system. But it's not just the chain, it's your sprockets as well. And you must know, at least by now, the cost of replacing your chain and sprockets. It's a big chunk of money. So it's cash in your pocket to run a Scott Oiler. Now, another benefit is the frequency of having to adjust your chain. Because when you run an oiler, the chain wear slows down dramatically. That's why your chain sprockets last so much longer. And that means far less adjustments required. So you don't have to worry about your oiling. You adjust less. It saves you a huge chunk of money because your chain and sprocket sets last so much longer with the Scott Oiler. The website is scottoiler.com. Anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. scottoiler.com. And it's also available at Revzilla. Cass and Moses is a law firm that specializes in representing motorcyclists. And they say if you've been injured, no matter what happened in a motorcycle accident, you should call them anyway at 1-800-MOTORCYCLE. 1-800-MOTORCYCLE. It's easy to remember. And you can tell by that number that they specialize. This is what they do. Imagine if something happens, the advantage or the benefit you would have from dealing with somebody who knows and understands riding motorcycles like Cass and Moses does. Now, even if you haven't had an issue... You can still drop by their website and sign up for a free download. It's a, it's a book called Standing Up for Bikers That Go Down. This apparently gives you a better understanding of the insurance and what your insurance does and doesn't do. And they've got a bunch of stories in there from over 30 years of representing injured motorcycle riders. Their website is CassAndMoses.com. Anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. CassAndMoses.com. Let's get back into the things that a traveler should know before departing on a motorcycle overland adventure. At least some of the things and and maybe some ideas of things that you at least could know. And we just discussed a little bit about due diligence and things like that. And all of this will come under that banner. 
So I, I was thinking, should we talk about hard skills at first? Because it's some of those things like, you know, Sam, you had some issues with riding skills. Michelle, you did as well. How do you guys feel about learning on your own as opposed to always going and signing up for a course? You can do it. There's so much that you can learn um, online and by, hey, reading books. Um, it's, I mean, map, learning how to read a map and um, use a compass. That's old school, but it's so important. Technology breaks. You can do that yourself. Um, well, I was thinking you know, of motorcycle to... skills, like cause I was thinking would start there with those hard skills, skills of riding skills itself. Take a course, take yeah. a course, take a course, take a course. But but you remember back when you were getting ready to go, money's an issue, right? A lot of times I mean, for, yeah. for most of us, money's an issue. We're going to do something. So taking a course is like, wow, it's a big chunk of money out of your budget. And, and Sam always says, you know, he thinks of how many more miles can I get? How many gallons of fuel can he get with that? I think a basic off-road riding course is money very, very well spent. I mean, you can spend you can spend a couple of thousand dollars on a full-on major course, or you can spend a few hundred on something, you know, like a one-day course. But the difference between zero and a one-day course is massive. It really is. I that's the one thing that actually I really, really should have done that I didn't. Yeah. Um, it would have given me a lot more confidence. It would have given me a lot more understanding. It would have taken away some of the fear factor, some mm -hmm. of the uncertainty, and all of those things would have made me just that much better rider. And in the early days, um, I would have seen that much more because I would have spent less time white handling the handlebars and staring at the road directly in front of me instead of looking 50 yards down the road, things like mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. And yeah. you feel much better. You feel more relaxed. You have some concepts, some basic skills to work on and to improve and practice. I mean, there's nothing stopping you at any point in your trip to, from taking a few hours, finding an empty space and practice some of the basic off-road skills. I mean, it's not that difficult. But to know to do that and to, in, in the process of taking the course, you realize how little you know and how bad what you've already learned is that you suddenly realize, oh, okay, I could do a whole lot better than I thought I could. Most people that start off um, taking a, a very, very basic course come away just, wow, that was amazing. And we do these courses at a lot of our events. Uh, so we see a lot of people coming away from just a few hours and just blown away by how much they learned. So do that. And not just what you can do with the bike, but also safety-wise. I mean, this makes yeah. you a safer rider when you know how to control your bike better and you understand the, mm -hmm. the fundamentals of it. Yeah, well, and you don't crash on the 13th day in Labrador and break your leg, too. I mean, that would be <laughs> really <Michelle>. nice. <laughs> yeah, it would have, for sure. You know, and, and I am a believer, absolutely, in taking courses and really expanding your skill set. But I also am a believer in practicing. And getting out and, and reinforcing those skills. So you'll be amazed what you learn at a school for um, even recognizing some of the bad habits that we've developed. And we we all do that as writers. Even people that have had uh, taken courses before or have been writing for a number of years, it's really an eye-opener to be assessed and be reminded of how you should properly do something mm -hmm. and to, you know, kind of get rid of some of our bad habits, you know, the way that we're handling the clutch or the way that, you know, our our bike position, all of that, but then go out and reinforce those regularly. And I think, you know, here in the Black Hills, there's a group called Dakota Dual Sport Riders and they get out and any of the riders in the group can connect with each other and go out and go off-roading for a day. And 
finding a community in your part of the world or even just a friend or two online or someone to go out and ride with can be super helpful just for giving you, you know, some more confidence, having another pair of eyes, looking at how other people ride lines or choose lines when you're out and about. All of those things, I think, um, just help to reinforce and build those skills. And and as um, Grant and Sam have said, that confidence, because it really makes a difference in your writing. And I know there are a number of people that I've talked to who plan on traveling internationally, and they have said to themselves and, and to me or other people, well, I'm not necessarily going off road. And you'd be amazed, even if you plan on going somewhere and staying on tarmac 80% of the time, you're going to be amazed how often there are construction projects and bad roads that you don't have a choice and you'll have to access your hotel by some, you know, old dirt road or whatever. So you need to be confident and be able to, you know, ride your bike up onto a pallet for shipping or up onto a ramp or over a narrow bridge over rocks in sand. You're going to run into those obstacles, even if you plan to stay on tarmac. So having those skills really are a great foundation that just make your trip that much better. Excellent points. I I agree with everything that everyone said, but there's one thing that we've, we've, we've missed here is that you have all those skills, but you still haven't ridden your bike fully loaded. You yeah. really should practice with your bike with all that weight on it because it changes completely the dynamics of the bike and how the bike handles, how it feels, how it brakes, how it accelerates. All those things are very, very important. And when you're talking about um, getting into sticky situations like uh, roadworks and things like that, Michelle, um, they can become very, very important because the bike is so much heavier. Uh, so you've got to know and be confident in handling it in those situations. So yeah, take all those other skill sets that you need with your motorbike and then slowly but surely load it up and feel the difference. Mm-hmm. That's so true. Yeah. Yep. I think that's an excellent point. And I was thinking as Michelle was talking there, uh, when you were saying, Michelle, about uh, getting together with a local group, and I thought that's a perfect time for your shakedown trip. Maybe you don't want to load yeah. everything you're going to take with you on your big trip, but you can certainly yeah. start to get an idea you know, by loading up and going camping and realizing how much, as Brian said, how much of a difference, because we all know this. And when the bike is loaded, it's a completely different animal. And some things that you would, you would tackle no problem at all with a unloaded bike. You'll think twice, if not, not uh, avoid it when your bike is loaded because of the way it's going to handle it. It'll be such a pig really um, mm-hmm. in, in the, in those situations. And Michelle, to your point about not planning to ride off-road, I mean, this is such an excellent point you made there because I can't tell you how many times I've talked with people who have told me just that story where they had no interest in riding off-road. They had no intention of riding off-road, what we'll call off-road. And then they find themselves into some gravel that they didn't plan on and find themselves getting into trouble. And even those, those off-road skills, as we all know, help us on road. So, you know, dealing with maybe a light bit of sand on the road, any sort of slippery surfaces, all those off-road, that off-road training is applicable to the street. Yeah, I was going to add to that. I was going to say basically the same thing, but add on a little, a lot of the off-road skills, like I know of a lot of off-road courses and we do them ourselves, is half a day or a full day and you never actually ride on the dirt. It's all done on a parking lot. It's all slow speed skills, being able to do tight turns, being able to look where you're going, keeping your eyes in the right place, all that kind of stuff you can learn and practice on tarmac. And it's so much more important when it's loaded because if you've got those slow speed skills 
turning around in a parking lot with a fully loaded bike becomes easy instead of paddle, 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 and then fall over because you didn't quite have it right. Mm-hmm. Um, improved clutch skills, using your clutch on a, on a hill, having proper clutch control is massive. And the average person does not have any clutch skills past getting going, and that's it. But being able to slip the clutch properly and have control at low speeds, massive difference. So you can actually take an off-road course and it's on tarmac and all your riding will be much, much better. Yeah. Clutch, uh, Grant, you know, you just, you don't want to wear it out either. You know, there's a there's a technique to it where you either have it in or out, you know, so you're not riding it all the way and, and wearing it out. Because if you're on a trip for two years, you, you, you if you ride your clutch all the time, you are going to wear it out. Yeah, I will. I will agree, but I will also say that a clutch is a wear item, and at some point, it's not that big a deal to replace, unless you've got an old oil head like us, in which case it's take a whole bike apart. <laughs> which, yeah, I was, it, it, say, I was just about dumb. to say, mate, uh, that's not right. <laughs> yeah, um, if you've got a, an airhead BMW or a 1200 GS BMW, it's a massive, massive job, and you want to be careful with your clutch. But everything else, every single other bike out there. It's an hour's job to change the clutch. It's not a big yeah. deal. I mean, the, yeah. the replacement clutch for my dirt bike is like 50 bucks. I consider that a wear item and I will abuse the clutch to the ends of the earth. I don't care, but I want to keep moving and use the clutch to keep control and be under control at all times. So clutch is a wear item. Right, but I don't want to wear mine out to the point where it's going to fail on me. Well, I, but if it, I know no, what but you're it, does, it never fails instantly. It doesn't fail instantly. No, it starts I know to that. slip at high speed under low and you say to yourself, you know, that clutch just slipped a teensy, teensy bit. Mm-hmm. It's time for a new one. Don't hesitate yeah. but, mm. and be aware of it. But don't be afraid to use the clutch when you need it. We do rider skills on Adventure Rider Radio, and 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 the the trainers we have on always talk about slipping the clutch. Always, but there is a yes. method to doing it so that you don't burn the clutch out. It's a wet clutch, except for your your tractors that you guys have. Um, but it's a wet clutch, and, and it's meant to slip. It's lubricated for that reason, right? But I mean, look yeah. at it. Who would put a clutch in a, in a motorcycle that you have to actually pull the whole thing apart to get at? Yeah, well, it was designed in yeah, well, well, you know, so let's be real here. <laughs> yeah, that's right. It's the Germans getting back at us. But the the <laughs> the, um, the, uh, uh, the new 1250 GSs, you know, they, they got the clutch plates at the front of the engine, which is yeah. great, you know. That's good. But you know where they put the alternator? If you do an alternator, you've got to crack the engine cases apart to get to the damn alternator. Oh, mm. I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah. Yep, yep, yep. Look it uh, up. Anyway. Uh, yeah. oh. <laughs> and they're putting the alternator in the worst place it can possibly be. Well, all the, all the Japanese bikes have the alternator inside the uh, crankcase as well. I, I mean, under a cover, so it's not a big deal to get at. But it's in the oil uh, and it's hot. Mm-hmm. What were you going to oh. say, Sam? Yeah. Um, winding back a little bit, just a little bit, guys. Um I was just sitting here while you were talking uh, um, thinking about the difference between my skills when I went through Cairo at the beginning of the trip and how they were um, a couple of years later going through Bangkok. And I remember feeling incredibly uncomfortable in um, Cairo traffic, which is just a zoo. It's the biggest city in Africa and it is, yeah, it's full on. Um, But by the time I got to Bangkok, I'd learned enough for actually the Bangkok traffic, which is just as nuts, 
to actually be fun. Mm-hmm. Now, if only I'd had that off-road training course first, um, perhaps I would have learned enough going uh, after that, going across Europe. By the time I got to, um, to Cairo, to be thinking, well, this is a bit of a laugh. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. Moral of the story, yeah. take, take an off-road training course. It's yeah. worth it. Yeah. And all the potholes in Cairo remind me of, yeah, you needed some off-road skills on the main <laughs> roads in Cairo to avoid the potholes <laughs> or to deal with them when you hit them because there's lots of them. And, I remember and in Cairo. Running the risk <laughs> going, of, of going, going back into what we've already discussed, though, um, when you when you take a course and you learn how to do things properly, you may find ways to control your bike even better than what you would by riding it mile after mile and working out your own method for riding it. I think Michelle exactly. said that about, to, yeah, about trying absolutely. to get past those uh-uh. things that you've learned, you know, by accident, okay. really. Yep. Yeah. Let me let me put a little bit of my history. Like I started riding 45 plus years ago and I learned everything by doing. I figured it out. Nobody taught me anything at all. And I did all right. Um, but today, well, I shouldn't say today, but you know, the last few years, I have actually taken an off-road course myself. Um, it improved my skills. I picked up some things and said, oh, that's how you guys do that. I didn't do, I don't do it that way. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, it's better. Yeah, that's mm. a good point. Okay, yep. Yeah, yeah, you learn new things and new techniques. And from le- teaching yourself, by simply trial and error and finding out that it hurts when you get it wrong. Um, you have particular ways of doing things. That does not mean they're the best way. They are survival ways of doing things. So, Or there could be ways that I, actually hinder you as well. Oh, absolutely. I mean, yeah. I was doing, yeah. I know one technique that I do for tight corners that, nah, that's just, not, <laughs> no, that's no good at all. There's better ways of doing it. And there's so much online now that I will actually occasionally go onto YouTube and I will look for writing courses and I practice them. I go out still today after almost 50 years of writing and I still practice in a parking lot, various off-road writing skills. Mm-hmm. And it's good. It's better. I get better. I improve my skills. I feel more confident. Yeah. You, you never stop learning. No, definitely. And uh, th- yeah, we, we've all agree that off-road riding course is well worthwhile. Let's move on to one other, <laughs> at least one other thing. Sam, you had started to talk about some other hard skills. Do you want to pick that up? Well, I just brainstormed a, a list down. So learn how to use a map and compass. Learn how to first aid and basic health okay, hold on. Let's, let's, just, let's just let's slow down. Slow down. So, <laughs> so you, you said We've map and, a list. <laughs> you said map and compass. And I think it's an excellent point because it sound, you can say that and, and really, you know, not think too deeply about it. But route finding, right? I mean, that's like, it's not just map and compass. It can be map and compass and it can be your GPS. Learning how to use the tools that you're planning to use. I think Grant, you told a story about somebody who said they were going to, I think it was to do with filming equipment. They were going to learn on the trip. That's not the time. That's not the place in my mind. And I think in in probably anyone who's, or does any sort of due diligence, doesn't want to learn route planning while you're on the trip and getting lost, right? So that's a, that's a very good point. So it's something that you want to look into, understand your GPS, those sorts of things. Anyone want to add to that? Well, again, you can take courses. <laughs> and we run an event called yeah. The Hum, the Mountain Madness event, which is all about, is focused on getting people to read maps, understand topography and all those funny little lines that are all over the map and the little icons. What's that all stuff all about? And one of the things that we've, for the, for the hum, we give people a map and a comp, and they have their own compass. But we give them a map and some points to find. And the teams always sit down and they work out where, where they're going to ride today. And then off they go about an hour later. 
And many have come back to me and said, yeah, we stopped at about one o'clock for lunch. We were hungry and, and we completely redid the rest of our day because we did not understand the relationship between the map and the ground. But after getting out there and actually doing it, using the map, working with it, ah, okay, better. So not necessarily as critical for uh, a big trip because we can all read a map and follow the highway, the main highway. That's duh, that's easy. But if you're going to get off road or into the back country or into small smaller places, and just for your own weekend adventure riding, learn to read a topo map and learn to read it well and use it well and do your traveling and your your weekend rides with that map because then you understand and you really internalize it and you're used to it and you're comfortable with it. I think that's a really critical skill. Sam, you mentioned first aid there. Now, now the map reading skills, I don't know if there's a lot of courses out there right now that you can take as far as map reading, but you can certainly do a lot of research on that. And that's something you can, again, all these things, I guess you practice them, of course. First aid, that's something you probably best learn with a course. Sam, would you actually sign up for a course? Yes, I would. Yeah, absolutely. And I would sign up for a course with a motorcycle bias too. When you can get medical courses where people are motorcyclists and they're teaching you first aid for what happens with um, different types of brakes and, you know, those sorts of things. And also you'll be learning how much medical kit you actually really need to carry. Um, and and that was a, something that I did was just so wrong when I started off. I had a huge medical kit. It never occurred to me that if something went wrong big time, it was so big and it was so buried in my pannier, I'd never be able to get out the blowing thing. And that actually did happen. No comments, please, Shirley. Um, what well, uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, you were thinking? <laughs> Um, it would have been very, very useful to have um, access to my first aid kit on a couple of occasions, but I didn't. But I mean, when you learn the sorts of injuries that you're likely to get as a motorcyclist, um, that is a really helpful course to go on. So you learn the sorts of equipment that you need to take with you for um, dealing with those sorts of injuries. It's very useful. I think there's a really good point that you're saying focus, get one that's focused with motorcycles. Of course, yeah, I mean, that, that makes perfect sense if you can find that. Do you find that fairly common that it's yeah. offered? In the UK, yes. Yeah, I've, yeah. I've, I've actually just uh, assessed three. I've done three assessing them for a different organisation, a, a, a government thing. And, uh, yeah, the, they are different and they teach very practical skills uh, for first aid on the road and uh, safety in certain circumstances. You know, if someone falls off in the, in the middle of the road, you don't drag them off the road. How to take a helmet off properly, uh, you know, how you, how you take the lining out of a helmet before you try and remove it in case someone's got a neck injury. All those things uh, are, are very important. And, you know, um, you don't need a big kit. You need uh, a good bandages, uh, some compression stuff, um, I've even included an EpiPen in mine now if I go riding with people who have an allergy or even get a, a bee sting, you know, you can use it then. And even out-of-date EpiPens are, um, are still going to have some impact. So my, my kits are probably three times, maybe four times the size of, a, of a, um, an iPhone, not much bigger than that. But, you know, it's got everything that I think we could um, we could handle most situations. So, yeah, I think they're very important, Sam. You know, some of the courses, they'll do things um, like um, they'll say, well, don't necessarily call, carry a triangle bandage for dealing with a broken arm. 
And they start no. you thinking yeah. about other clothing or other equipment that you may have that you'll be able to adapt to do exactly the, the same thing. And to me, that's clever. And as, as motorcycle travellers, that's the sort of stuff we need, isn't it? Because otherwise we do end up with huge kits. I'm really impressed with the size of your kit, Brian, and I, I can guess what's in it. And I think that that's what you need. You don't need a really, really big kit, do you? Mm-hmm. No, no, you don't. The, the epinephrine no. pen, but you, Brian, you're saying if it's out of date. The, the thing with that, you got to make sure it's not cloudy. That's the look yeah. at the at the vial yeah. and make sure the the vial's not gone cloudy. Then that's the point to get rid of it. Yeah, yeah, very cool. Yeah, and I think the skills that they teach you. There's a couple companies in the U.S. that teach um, motorcycle specific first aid, but also accident scene management, which is a lot mm-hmm. of what you, we're all yeah. talking about here. And I think you know those are things that are really such a good foundation that you find that if you run across an accident, even as a driver, if you're not necessarily on a bike when it happens, those things really kick in. You, it's, it's fantastic to have that on board so that you can draw from those skills and that training if, you know, God forbid you run in a, into an accident or if you're in one. So mm-hmm. it's good yeah. training to have all the way around. A little anecdote, a friend of ours, uh, she was uh, driving her car and uh, came around a corner and there'd been a guy had come off his bike, broken his leg laying in the middle of the road. So she's pulled up, you know, made everything safe. And uh, it's, it's a fairly hot day. And uh, another guy pulled up and she's trying to comfort this guy. And she said to this bloke, there's an umbrella in my car. Go and get the umbrella. We'll need that. So he goes and gets the umbrella and stands here with the umbrella over himself rather than the patient on the ground. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> so would would anyone here not pay for a first aid course before you left on a trip at this point? So everybody would, would pay for it. Yeah, okay. awesome. but I've, I've paid for them uh, and used them just in life. I mean, not just for motorcycle safety. I've taken first aid and CPR classes for 20 years just through work and caring mm. about friends and family. So yeah, yeah. yeah. Same, same. And not many people know how to do CPR, yeah. you know, they, they, they don't know how to do CPR. Mm-hmm. Right. And there's, that's, there's that's, sometimes places, you know, through Red Cross and other places you can find out about just basic first aid and CPR classes. That's foundational, but something motorcycle specific really builds and grows those, enhances those skills even further. So <laughs> they're worth it. Yeah. And a lot of motorcycle clubs do um, a, a day and it's a good day. You know, you have a barbecue, have a chat, you know, do all that sort of stuff. It's a good way to do it. Okay, what what else? So we've got um, off-road riding course, map and compass work, and, and route finding and first aid. Um, staying in touch with your family, I think, is pretty important. I think uh, working out ways to do that. Well, hang um, on. We're talking hard skills here, Brian. So hard uh, skills. Hard skills. Um, All right. Okay. Yeah, hard skills. Some, be- sometimes staying in touch with family can be hard. So. <laughs> 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 and some relationships, it was a skill, I guess. That's anyway. A, that's right. Um, that is so true. Um, I'm surprised Grant hasn't jumped straight out with um, learning how to do tire changing and t- and tire yeah. awareness. Well, yes, yeah. that whole the whole mechanical thing is a whole big issue. Yeah. But yeah. basic maintenance. On average, yeah, you're going to have to deal with flat tires. It, it happens. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know people that have gone through Sudan, for instance, and there's a lot of um, what do you call them? Come on, Sam. What are those thorns called? Oh. oh, yeah, I know the ones you mean. They're, they're yeah. <laughs> three prongs poking downwards and one poking upwards. So whatever yeah. way they land, there's always going to be a prong sticking upwards. Yeah. 
Nice. Yeah. Um, I know people who've had, I think the record that I've heard of is eight flats in two days. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that is right. Amazing. Especially with a tube. Okay. That is stressful. The thing is with this, it's, it's peace of mind as well, isn't it? Knowing yeah. that if it happens, you can change it. I guess that goes with everything we've talked about so far. Peace of mind, it, it, it goes a long way to just have that understanding of how to deal with these things. So, but a tire change, yeah, it, like that's, that's fundamental. Does everyone agree with that? Yeah. 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 As, yeah. as well as service, how to service your bike and prevent yeah. problems. Mm-hmm. Basic regular servicing, being able to go through your owner's manuals list of things you should do every X number of miles and understand what they are and understand what the correct, what correct is and what a good setting is. I mean, I've seen so many people with their clutch cables misadjusted, like badly misadjusted. You know, it, it's just frustrating because nobody tells them. So you can, I used to teach way, way back when um, a basic motorcycle maintenance course. You know, people came in for, I think we had two hours once a week for two months and people learned all the basics, how to set everything up. We did a tire change. We even In those days, we even took carburetors apart and looked inside. Uh, all the basic stuff so that you can look after your own bike on a regular basis, know what to look for, know what's wrong when there's something wrong, something just isn't right, and how to make sure it's going to fit you properly. You know, ergonomics come in, into it and make sure make the bike a, fits you. I'm going to make a sweeping statement here, if I may, and that is times have changed. Yep. Um, now, with so many modern bikes being requiring specialist equipment especially electronic equipment and so on to do the maintenance etc whereas you know back in the days of r80s and the tenere's and all of that sort of thing yeah you just needed a good set of tools and um, a handbook and some you know some basic knowledge and you could do the work but people have got more and more to the stage where they don't do the work themselves they take it down to the shop because it is now too complicated to do unless you have all of those specialist tools. And I think that even if you are going out on a much more modern bike, which is more difficult to maintain, you should still get the basic um, courses. And if you've got a plug-in computer that you can be using with your bike, a, a diagnostic tool, then learn how to use it. Learn what's involved. These sort of basic maintenance things, they've just changed with the times, um, but they're still important. Again, it's that peace of mind thing. Even if you don't want to change your tires, you don't want to do that to yourself while you're on a trip, you're going to pay to have it done. Being able to do it in a jam or being able to direct someone who's who's able to do that sort of thing. It's just information I think that could be invaluable. Yeah, I think mm-hmm. you, you have to take your, own, your service manual, not just an owner's manual, but an actual service manual. Even if you haven't got a clue, at, but if it's broken... You can hand it to the mechanic who's never seen your fancy motorcycle before. And with that manual, he can fix it as best as possible. I I agree with that statement. But I think the problem is nowadays is actually finding a manual for your bike. Well, there's the Haynes Haynes manuals. Yeah, but well, I know for my bike, for instance. And you get an online version. My bike is at least 10 years old. I've not found a manual yet. Nothing printed. Now, the Haynes manual is very vague. And there's a lot of things that it doesn't cover. It's, It's okay. But... As far as a printed manual, forget it. There, there's nothing. And I think this is becoming more the norm, as Sam said, with, yes. with times changing. Uh, it's going to become more and more difficult to actually find a comprehensive manual that you can hand to somebody. So it's a great idea if you can do it and, and get as much as you can. But I think there is a, a bit of a challenge there. 
Sure, I, and I would agree with that. But I think you also have to keep in mind that somewhat vague in the hands of um, an experienced mechanic, maybe not on your bike, but an experienced mechanic, your somewhat vague manual is probably enough. It'll give them the answer. It'll give them a wiring diagram, which is huge when you're trying to find any kind of electrical problem. Um, so uh, getting less so now though, when we're talking about CAN bus systems and things like that, I mean, then, then we get into oh, specialized yeah. things, right? I know. But, um, but well, yeah, let me, but, let me tell a little story for you. Just, there was a guy, and I won't name any names and he was coming from Europe and he got to, uh, what's the country above Namibia? I think it was Angola. Yeah. Mm -hmm. He got to Angola and the bike died and he couldn't figure out what it was, checked everything, did all the basic stuff, shipped the bike home and had it fixed and sent back down. Turned out to be an electrical mm -hmm. component. Now, he could have taken, and here's where you have to think outside the box a little bit. He could have taken every single electronic component off the bike, put it in a box, sent it all home, had it all tested at home, and they could have sent him back the repaired components for about a hundredth of the cost of shipping the bike home. Wow. So think outside the box a little bit when you have a problem. I don't know what it is. I can't figure it out. I've isolated this, 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 and this. Just send me new ones. Do whatever you have yeah. to do. Mm -hmm. don't I don't like the idea. I don't like the idea of carrying a Haynes manual. It's, it's pretty big and bulky. Um, but you can get, ele you get an electronic version of it. The electronic version, yeah. yeah. And, you know, reading a, reading a Haynes manual where it says. Uh, and just ease this off means get a hammer and belt the hell out of it. <laughs> yeah, the, the Haynes language is um, is rather specific like that, isn't it? Birgit and I carry yeah. the timer. And it was very, very useful for Birgit because she's only five foot tall. When she wanted something on a higher shelf, she could always put on the grandstand on it. It's very helpful. <laughs> yeah, that is a yeah. big manual to carry with you for sure. God, it's huge. <laughs> but the number of times that we used that and we were so happy we had it. Yep, mm -hmm. very definitely. Okay, what what else uh, other than so service and, and understanding? Well, photography, certainly photography, photography, <laughs> photography. Learn how yeah. to take mm -hmm. pictures. I see thousands and thousands and thousands of pictures. Nine point nine percent of them are crap. <laughs> Wait a second here. You're saying this is a skill that you think that people should have before they go? They should be able to take good photographs. Who cares if they're yes. crap? They're taking them for them. I'm taking a picture uh, of me standing beside my bike and it's crap. What do I care? No, they're not taking it for them. <laughs> they're not taking them for them. They're taking them for their fans and trying to be famous. And they're crap. And I get tired of it. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> Grant has derailed Grant, the conversation here, I think. <laughs> Grant, you actually sound quite serious here. I thought, no, he's got his tongue in his cheek here, but no, no, it doesn't sound funny. He means this. Ooh, Grant. I do. But I, I will say at the other end of the spectrum, I've seen some beautiful stuff that saves me the trip of going some places because somebody's captured it so beautifully. Well, that's <laughs> horrible. Though. There, there, are some wonder, there are some wonderful photographs out there. There's some wonderful photographers doing trips and making some wonderful stuff. I agree. But there's so many that are just... Oh, it's tiresome. I, I used to be a professional photographer. I'm sorry. And I teach photography. And it pains me to see that when it's so easy... I teach a one-hour basic composition course at a lot of our events. And the number of people that have taken that basic, and I mean, we're talking basic course here, they come back to me a year later and say, wow, I can't believe the difference that that simple course took or, or made in my photography. Everybody says I take wonderful photographs. They're fantastic. So much better. 
and it took one hour course. It's not hard. Learn the basics, please. Okay, so let me just That's ask what point. I've done with the rest of this. Now, who would not pay for the photography course before they went on a trip out of their trip budget money? You don't even have to take, pay for it. It's online. It's not that hard. Or or you could pay for it if you want, but please do something. Okay. So we'll leave that in <laughs> I there. I did because, pay for one. So yeah, did you? Uh, obviously I would. Oh, you just yeah. had to do that, didn't you, Michelle? You just had to do that in the back, yeah. Thank up. you, Michelle. <laughs> <laughs> I, I not so long back went on a, a course run by Simon and Lisa Thomas. And yes. oh, yeah. I Good. think I take reasonable photos. Um, and I, I think I've, I learned the hard way with 36 shot films. Um, and perhaps two photos coming out that were worth keeping. And that costed me a lot of fuel money. And yeah, eventually I got to the stage where I was taking reasonable photos, but what a lot of wasted opportunities. And then all these years later, I went on this um, course with Simon and Lisa, and I came out of it thinking, bloody hell, if only I'd known that when I set off traveling. Wow. And Thank you, Sam. Exactly. Okay. okay. All yeah. right. I'm outnumbered. However weak I think this is. I'm going to leave it in there. Okay. What, what else other than photography? I'm going to say technology just in general um, from the standpoint of being able to work on your computer, to use it to communicate, to load files into um, your GPS, to update software, update your phone, maybe have backups if you are interested in saving backups of your camera discs. If you're really on the road for a long time and you need to, to save them and clear them and reuse some of your discs, um, tracking devices, any of that kind of stuff, just technology in general. You really want to do some shakedown trips and practice with all of your equipment mm. and feel comfortable working and updating those and, and keeping them current and knowing how to troubleshoot when there's a problem. That's a good point to shakedown trip, isn't it? Because you can plan on taking this stuff and, and to figure it out on the trip again, like we, like that story that Grant had told about someone who's going to figure it out on the trip. It's, it's probably not your best time spent from your, from your vacation. Yeah. Right. And I think, I think you need to load up with all your stuff and go for at least a week trip with no destination in mind, nothing planned. I'm just going to go, I'm going to stop and I'm going to camp and I'll, I'll figure it out and I'll work my way through all this stuff. And at the end of the trip, you'll have, you'll know what you don't know and what you need to work on. So you've got to do that not a week before you leave, but a month, two months, but at least before you leave, you want to have that. I it's, it's the the old unknown unknowns. I don't I don't no, know no, no, what no. I don't know. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Can I just add one sentence in there? And that sure. is, um, when you do your test week, try as many different road types as you possibly can, Amen. because that's going to really teach you. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. It's you got to have that bit of practice. It just makes such a difference. I, I always remember Doug Botkey. Um, heading off on his first big trip on his chopper. And he got, I forget, a few hours out and he pull, pulled over. His buddy had come with him. He says, I can't take all this stuff. I just, his bike's unrideable. And he just started offloading stuff onto his buddy who took it all home for him because he hadn't done any practice at all and had way too much stuff. But within a few hours, he figured out he had too much stuff because the bike was unrideable. Mm -hmm. So how quickly did he get rid of a bunch of stuff he thought he had to have? Didn't take long. So if you really think about it, you could get away with less. So any other things other than hard skills or anything for that matter? I had a couple things for hard skills too. Just at least I consider hard skills. And maybe one of them isn't 
I don't know what the word would be for it, organization or admin or something like that, making sure that you keep track of your paperwork. So not just things like passport and vaccination records, like your yellow fever card, if you're going into countries that that applies to, but knowing how to research that kind of stuff, understanding when your documents are going to expire, when your credit cards are going to expire, your driver's license, your vehicle registration, anything to do with paperwork, that kind of stuff, just being organized and knowing where those are at and how long they're good for and how to renew them if you need to. Ah, yes. I was, I was hoping really you were going to say that, how to renew them. That is so important. Sometimes you have to be there in person in order mm. to renew it. A lot of times now you can just do it online, no problem from anywhere. But sometimes you need to be there in person. And I've got a long story I won't bother going into. But yeah, having to be there in person is a major problem. Yeah. And I think I forgot to mention that that includes or should include your vehicle import permits, your carnets, insurance, anything to do with the vehicle. It's your bike too. So just there's a lot of kind of admin stuff that I think are hard skills you need to be able to manage. Mm -hmm. That's a really good point. A lot of this information is hidden away, hidden away in the small print, isn't it? And mm. you, you get so excited about, yes, I've got it. And yeah, this is how it works. And this is what I've got to do. And fantastic. And then you don't get down to the, oh, Right. Okay. So yeah, I need to be at home to deal with that. Mm. My mother was absolutely brilliant for me. I mean, when when I was traveling, she was my home base and um, she was fantastic and she hated motorcycles and she um, was very stoic about me going off and traveling around the world. And uh, the one thing she said to me was, how can I help? And how cool is that? And she then taught herself how to do all the various connections and making phone calls to people about things to do with motorcycling and traveling and all of the rest of it. And um, yeah, very cool. Love it. So the backup uh, or what I'm leading to around the houses um, is have somebody at home who's completely in tune with everything that you've got going on with your paperwork so that if you need help when you're out on the road, they know exactly what you're talking about. They've got the contact details, they've got the telephone numbers, the email addresses, et cetera, et cetera, so that they've got a chance of helping you from, um, yeah, from home. Yeah, I think it's a good one. So because I remember you telling the story about the carnet. Your your mom had to phone a bunch of times, I guess, and deal with the the person uh, yeah. somebody about your carnet. So I'm, you know, that's invaluable. And and to go along with that would also be the parts thing too. And we've talked about this before mm-hmm. in different episodes. Is find a reliable place that you can get parts from that could be your parts supplier that you have a bit of a relationship with. So that if you do need something that has to be ordered, you have someone who knows what you're doing. They understand the situation. You can call them up and say, hey, can you send me this part? And they will package it up and and ship it to you via whatever to wherever you are. Yeah. And don't be afraid to get it from some other continent. I know if if you're from Australia and you're now in Southeast Asia or Europe, you know, you can get it in in Europe. You you don't have to get it from home. Um, That's a very bad example. But uh, if you're in Africa, you don't have to get it from Canada, for instance. You can get the part from Germany whatever. You know, be, make sure you've got uh, alternate possible places to get it from. And yep. just, I wanted to say about the organization thing that Michelle had said, um, and I think you said this in, in, in what you were saying, Michelle, but I just want to make sure it was covered. That's um, setting up all your paperwork. So when you get to the border, you know what you have and you know where it is and you know where your copies are, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And that it's readily accessible. And, you know, one of the things that I think I've talked about on a separate show too, is I maintain electronic copies as well. So I have my paper copies in person, but I have backups that I can access 
if I did lose my paper copies. So I'm able to get access to a copy of my passport so that I can kind of recover and still keep traveling or get things fixed, even if I have documents stolen or lost. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think everything should be photocopied or s- scanned and stuck up mm-hmm. on the web so you can get access to it from anywhere. Yeah. yeah. I had a friend who worked for the British Embassy and he said to, to me that the number of people that they get, number of tourists that they get coming in saying, well, I've had my passport stolen or I've had my passport lost. Well, have you got a copy of it? Well, no. Should I have? Mm-hmm. And you just think, oh, for goodness sake, um, is that not common sense? Common sense is such a fine thing, isn't it, for travellers? We all have it. We just need to let it get in the way of the things we plan yes. and the decisions that we make. We, sorry, you just said we all have it? Yeah. No, they call it common sense, but it's an oxymoron. It's common. No, it's, it's not. Really, I mean, you can get, yeah, I've yeah. seen it advertised on the internet. You can get it on Amazon uh, in small tubes. But <laughs> twenty nine ninety five this weekend only. <laughs> another, thing, another thing that's not, um, uh, which is probably uh, a modern day thing is accessing your finances. Do, do your credit cards yeah. work in certain areas? Some companies now and some banks will ring on your mobile to verify transactions and transfers and things like that. And yeah. um, do you have access to your mobile phone in that country? You know, do you have to put your phone on roaming? You know, you, you really have to contact um, your, your banking organisation or have something organised with a power of attorney for someone at home or something like that. The, the problem that they've realised here in Australia is if you want, you've got. Um, you put in an overseas SIM because roaming on your phone is just prohibitively expensive and you buy a train ticket or a bus ticket and they want to send you the code oh. to authorise the payment to your SMS. You can't do it. And your SMS yeah. is to your Australian phone. Oh. So you either have to travel with a phone with two SIM cards in it or work out some other way of doing it. But if you've got an Australian credit card, you you can contact your bank before you leave, but there's no way they can set up the SMS to go to anything except the, the mobile phone, which is registered to your account. And yeah, that is a trap for young players. That it's is increasingly a, a problem. Really, yep. really yep. good point. Now, the, yeah. the yeah. one of the other, I'm just going to mention this because it's a it's a scam that many people have fallen for, and it can run into something like this because what you might be inclined to do is ask somebody else if they could give you if you can get the code sent to them, for instance. But he, this is this runs into a scam that that people were doing. Uh, I think it was on Facebook, but they were messaging somebody and saying, "I've lost my phone." Is it okay if I have a code yeah. sent to you? And the, and they go, well, yeah. I guess so. So then, and you, they get the code and they give it to the person. Well, that code was for your account that you just gave yeah. to someone else. So so that is really exactly. that is quite a problem as we become more dependent on our phone and all of this. What do they call it? Two step security verification. Verification. Mm-hmm. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, one one easy cure for that is to have a second phone that has your home. SIM card in it, and you can buy a phone usually in a lot of these countries for $25 or $50. They're dirt cheap. They don't have to be a smartphone. It just has to be able to receive an SMS, and that's it. But you don't want to leave that on because you don't want to pay the roaming charge. No, no, you don't. You only turn it on when you know when you're going to use your credit card and you know that they're going to send you an SMS for the verification code. Mm. You turn it on, and and away you go. Sure, it costs you 10 bucks. Yeah. And that's that's fine if you got a if you got a phone signal. Yeah. Well, right. you're going to have a phone signal in most places, really. 
It's only Australia you don't have phone signals. That is a really interesting point, though, that, uh, that that's something that has to be worked out, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. I think if, if you're going to be doing a credit card transaction that's going to require a two-step verification, then you're probably in a town, city, where getting a signal isn't a big deal. Yeah. You're not yeah. going to be doing that in the middle of nowhere. They're going to want cash. There's a big difference. Um, so I wouldn't worry about that part of it, but be aware of the potential issue and be aware that you really, if you're going to buy or use another SIM card, a local SIM card, that you need to be able to stick your original one either into your phone, swap them out, or have a second phone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I hadn't even thought about that. I think that's yeah. really, really important. It is. Um, what else? Anyone else have uh, anything on their on their minds or on their list? Patience. Ah, I was waiting for that one to come up. Patience. <laughs> yeah. And and you can take a course for this, I'm I'm assuming you're gonna say. <laughs> I wish. <laughs> I'm still working on my patience. <laughs> I think I think we started with patience, didn't we? And we're back to it. So, so I think it's very, very important. Yeah, you're right. No, I think it did come up at the start, didn't it? It was discussed at the start there. <laughs> Yeah, I think patience is just so critical. You know, if you expect everything to be like at home, you're going to be sorely disappointed and, and very, very frustrated. Um, and and you run out of patience. You get angry, and then that doesn't do you any good at all. It's not going to be the same. Why would you go there if it's going to be the same? I mean, that's the whole point. It's different somewhere else. It's something new and different. And that's um, point. Yeah. Uh, um, and it's not the same. And to be honest, that doesn't make it bad. Or even worse than at home, it can they could be doing it better than you're used to. It's just different, and that's okay. So I think it, it's really important to wrap around your head that you need to get used to how it's done somewhere else. We've lived in several different countries as, as residents for years, and I can tell you that they don't run it here, but we do it differently. Oh yeah. I mean, by oh. extension, we do it better. Yeah. This is their way. They're used to it. And they like it or they change it. So shut up and learn something new and think of it as a learning experience and not a frustrating waste of time. Oh, it's, uh, oh this, this really gets up my nose. It really does. And I come across people who are on the road and it's always somebody who hasn't traveled much before. And so, of course, they're going through the learning curve. But to go to a country that's a developing world country, for example, and expect things to be as slick as, it, as they are in their own country. <laughs> well, mm, OK. Um, I mean, we just have to remember that we're the guests in these countries and it's our job to adapt to them. It's not their job to flex to suit us. Amen. And I, I have a little mantra, which I normally normally say to myself after I've sung to myself, keep on looking on the bright side of life, because that always helps me, gives me a smile, is every day is an adventure. Days are made up of moments. This moment is part of why I'm, I'm here. I'm not in a hurry. And if it goes wrong, it's not because I've not done the best I can. And another mantra is everything's going to be fine. It may just not be the version of fine that I had planned. Yeah. Those are exactly. so well put. Are you okay, Sam? <laughs> Somebody's got a cat. It sounds like he's <laughs> meowing that when he's talking. Yeah, that. that was our cat meowing into the microphone. I thought it was Sam. <laughs> nice. No, I can do that. Yeah. Something you ate or? Oh, no, don't talk to me about that. <laughs> so um, what else? What, what, what else uh, to go after patience? 
I had um, on my list situational awareness um, because I think that though that can be a skill set that's a little hard to kind of get your head around, but I'll give you some examples of what I have in mind that at least uh, keeps you safer, but also helps you enjoy your trip a bit more. Uh, maybe an example would be knowing when you should or shouldn't be somewhere, um, kind of developing an awareness for what the situation is going on like around you. Maybe there's changing political climates. Um, so nationally, there could be things going on. But even in a community, if it if it um, if you're staying in a place for a few days and it doesn't feel as safe as as you think it should, or something doesn't feel quite right, then move along. But at least being aware of that and and understanding. Um, you know, what's going on in the world around you helps you to just be a little bit safer, but also helps you engage um, in the community and, and in the environment that you're in a little bit more and hopefully helps um, help helps you to enjoy the trip a bit more. So maybe okay. you're become, you're becoming more aware of local customs, of how people greet each other, just kind of being engaged. But that situa- situational awareness, easy for me to say, haha. Um, so, <laughs> It is, I think, a skill set that really makes your trip just that much better. Totally agree. It's 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 understanding a little bit about the culture that you of the country that you're going to, and it's also learning things like you know, in some country, one country, I think it was Ethiopia, when when somebody sort of lifts their head and goes, then they're actually saying no instead of my, my instinct would be for them to be thinking, well, actually that's a yes. I'm getting a head, head nod here. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's learning those things so that you're not then getting offended when you're not getting the reaction that you really thought you ought to be. Mm-hmm. Do you do that yeah. in, in yeah. advance of each country? Like how do you do that? And even Michelle, maybe we'd start with you. Is, it, uh, is this something you can practice in advance? And do you have any ideas for this? Um, I think that you can certainly probably even do it in your own country. I think we as humans just go through our day and and things become so desensitized. We're not paying attention. We're really in our heads and kind of going through the motions of our lives, but paying attention to how people greet each other or what they're doing. um, I think you could do that in your own country, but something as for me, I think of crossing into every country. And I think somebody mentioned earlier, maybe it was Grant about how Spanish was different from every country in Central America than the other, even though they're all speaking Spanish, they're very different versions of it. But the same is true with their customs. And so you learn that they use different words for good morning or hello. And so I learned to adjust and adapt to that as well. Instead of using something more formal, maybe one country uses a little more or casual or comfortable version of hello or good morning. Um, But just kind of, you know, following and mirroring or mimicking to some degree what you're seeing in your environment as a way of of showing respect to them, trying to to do those sorts of things. Uh, Mm. Maybe in Muslim countries as a woman, I cover my head. Um, I just do things so that I blend in a bit more. It helps keep me safer, but it also comes across very much as, as a sign of respect to their culture and community. And, and I want to have respect for that. So um, I, I'm, I'm open to just learning as I go on the road and being aware of those things first and foremost brings them to my attention. And then I can choose to, to incorporate them in my behavior and my choices about travel or not. Nice. 
you, yep. you also Excellent. mentioned political in there, I think, at the start when you first mentioned this. And I, I think mm-hmm. that's important. I mean, if, for instance, if you were going to Peru right now and, and not yeah. knowing what was going on, you could find yourself into some delays at the very least, if not worse. So certainly that's yeah. the, type, the type of thing you can you can check out before you go. And, and that's probably, that probably goes without saying, I think most people would, but it, it's certainly something to keep in, in your mind, isn't it? Yeah. And it can change when you're on the road. So just to be aware mm. of it, you you may be on the road. Obviously, there were a lot of travelers out there when COVID hit. So people that were staying tuned to the news before it, they were facing travel restrictions, some people chose to button up their trips beforehand because oh, yeah. they were aware of it and they were on top of it and starting to plan already before you know, it was out of their hands. Mm-hmm. Plan B, Brooke. Mm-hmm. Always have a plan B. Always. Yeah. So anything else? I had a little um, a, a little line that popped into my mind when I was thinking about this. Keep an eye open for all the unexpected opportunities because those are where most of the adventures are. In other words, don't travel on the tram lines of good planning. Yeah. I think I've mentioned this before. There was one couple that had planned a trip through Russia, Southeast Asia, et cetera. And before they left, they had... Every night planned, they knew where they were going to be every single night, and they had photo albums on their shelf with the date and location marked on them from here to there. (laughs) Now, that is not going to work. It is going to fall apart. (laughs) Things will go wrong. You'll break your leg on the 13th day. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, you will. I couldn't resist that. (laughs) I guess it's not bad though. Like if it's part of your exercise for planning, you know, saying, okay, this is the possibilities and and be fully aware that, I mean, you're guaranteed this thing's going to fall apart, (laughs) but I mean, it it can be a bit of an exercise in planning. Yeah, and and like Sam was saying, um, be be prepared for serendipity. You meet somebody on the road, and they tell you about this wonderful place they stayed at, and how cool it was, and there was caves, and blah blah blah. If you hadn't planned for it, you can't go, can you? Well, yeah, you can because you plan for change. You prepare for change. You expect change. It's part of the trip. Okay, so we got some, and the, and these are the top ones. Like these, these are what's what was obviously first on everyone's mind here. The list that we have here. I, I'm going to actually put this list on the in the show notes so that it can be downloaded if somebody wants to download that list. I'm thinking here as the last thing, just to, just to wrap this up. What would and we'll go through everybody. Everybody will get a chance to do this. Last line of advice for someone in this planning process. Sam, last line of advice. Um, know that taking your time makes all the difference. A rash decision is a part of an adventure, though, but let your common sense rule. And I know you laughed at me before, you're all rotten sods. Um, but common sense, let it rule, not your fear or the flippant side to your nature. Know that taking your time makes all of the difference. And I'm going to tag on to the side of that. And we've sort of kind of touched on it. Um, uh, Michelle did just now. Treat everyone and everything with respect until it's proved that they don't deserve it. And then you, as the overlander, the traveller, have the luxury of being able to ride on. Okay, nice. Michelle? Um, I could sum it up with one word, but I, as usual, won't. (laughs) (laughs) Flexibility. Stay flexible. I think that really... Uh, makes a big difference. We we can say all of these tools and things are great to have in your toolkit, but um, use them as you need to expand on some, or you may not need to use others, but just stay flexible. 
Oh, I like that. That's good. Boy, you must mm-hmm. have been sweating it thinking somebody else might get that before you get that out. <laughs> I was. She took it. <laughs> she beat me to it. Oh, sorry, Grant. <laughs> okay, Grant, you're left empty. What have you got? Um, without that one, which I wholeheartedly endorse, um, I would say tolerance goes with that too. There, there's a reason they do it that way. And just because you don't know or understand the reason they do it that way, doesn't make it any less valid. Mm-hmm. Be flexible. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yep. Yep. Brian, how about you? I was going to say patience or take your time. Just take your time. Think about it and just take your time. That's great. Okay. Mm-hmm. Shirley? Enjoy it. Oh. You're here. Yeah, too right. Yes. Well said. Wow. That's... T- that's really telling what, what you guys have said here all at the end. Flexibility, tolerance, patience, enjoy it. Uh, that, that's great. Wow. That is fantastic. Jim? Well done. Yep. Jim, can I add another one? Yes. Be the guest in someone else's country that you'd like to welcome to yours. Ooh. You're here. Right. Yeah. Okay. No, that's great. Okay. Well, uh, I know we've been, uh, well, I guess we haven't been all that long, have we? I mean, time's flown by. I'm, I'm having fun. But let's um, let's move into plugs, shall we? Michelle, what have you got? Uh, nothing. <laughs> what? Come on. Shirley had that one. <laughs> well, I'm going to join like... Shirley's club. <laughs> <laughs> now, Shirley, no. what, now what are you going to well, choose? Shirley's... No, I actually, uh, Shirley's got I actually have a... It's not exactly motorcycle, but there was an absolutely brilliant three-part, three, four-part BBC documentary on our television stations here in Australia called The Last Overland. And it's a story um, in the 1950s, the BBC organised a trip of two universities to take a Range Rover from London to... Series one Land Rovers. Land Rovers from London to Singapore. And they wrote a book and made a film called The First Overland. And a a BBC crew and a historian and the family of one of the original travellers has recreated the journey in reverse, trying to get through the roads that they went through in the 50s. It's just fabulous overland adventure. The documentary is called The Last Overland and the book, the original book by Tim Slessor is The First Overland. Yes, and cool. the, the researcher for the original was a fellow that some people might know as Sir David Attenborough. Ah, wow. He, was, he, commissioned, he, he commissioned, commissioned the film. Yeah, yeah. Oh, right. Okay. Fantastic. Grant, what do you have? Nothing too exciting. Just all kinds of events this year. It's a busy, busy year, which is an absolutely wonderful thing to have happening after COVID and all the rest of that unpleasantness we won't even talk about. I didn't mention it, did I? <laughs> so we've got lots of events. I think just go to the events page, horizonsunlimited.com slash events and see what's close to you. We have a new one, for instance, Austria, September 21 to 24. Uh, and of course, Virginia, Bulgaria, California, Canwest, Newfoundland is back on again, Switzerland, France, Germany again, South Africa in November. So lots going on everywhere. Check it out, and I hope to see you at least one of them. Okay. Uh, Brian, what do you have? I've, I've got a couple. Um, here in Australia, the All Brit Rally is coming up in April uh, on the 22nd and 23rd. 
at a little town not far from here called Newstead. And um, they do, it's all the old British motorcycles. They have a rally site, but they do a ride out to a beautiful, quaint little town called Malden, where all the bikes, they close off the street and they line up all the bikes and uh, people can go and have a good look at them for nothing. Or you can go to the rally site and camp there at a, at a reasonable cost. Uh, the website is uh, bsa.asn.au slash events slash ABR for All Brit Rally. So that's one. And the other thing, I, I'm going to give a little plug to a friend of mine who's a bit of a reclusive, I'd say, but he has an amazing collection of old Americans, mostly Harley-Davidson motorcycles. Uh, and he has a website which anyone in the world can access and have a look at with some of these beautiful old motorcycles that he has. A lot of them are old races. And um, it's you know, do it for nothing. But if anyone's interested in Harleys, he has eight valve Harley Davidsons from the the teens, twenties, thirties. He has a thing called a Crocker, which they only made I think 140 of them before the war, which he races. And this one motorcycle would be worth oh, I'd hate to think half a million dollars, something like that. Wow. Um, but he has a wonderful, wonderful collection. He's a, he's a wonderful guy, well worth a look. And he on his website, there's uh, beautiful photos of the old bikes and the storylines behind each bike. So he's a really, really nice guy. He's done a marvellous job with his um, with his old bikes. So anyone that's interested, I'll give you the website. It's, um, you it's, put it in the show notes. I put it in the show notes, but yeah. it's harleycitycollection.com.au. But um, I'll send it to you, Jim. Sure. Is this like, so you, you can go in and see this, like set up like a museum? Uh, no, look, it's a, pro, it's a private collection. So it's more something you look at his website. Look at his website, but um, he, he would certainly invite people if they look on his website and leave a message or something like that. Uh, and if you're interested, um, he would more than likely allow you to have a look at it. But oh, it's, it's a wonderful, wonderful collection. Even just to look at it on the website, it's fantastic. Okay. Sam, what do you have? Well, my next USA trip is coming together now. The first event is going to be um, Motorcyclists of America National in Virginia from the 8th to the 10th of June. And it's the 50th anniversary of MOA and the 100th anniversary of BMW Motorcycles. So it's going to be a really good fun event. Um, I'm looking forward to that. And I'll keep you guys up to speed as the next bookings are confirmed. You can always check my website where you'll find the updates and, of course, um, loads of info on my five books. The next venue that I've got that is confirmed now is the Kissel's Soggy Bottom Moto Days in um, Eastern USA. That's right at the end of July. So um, I'm going to be filling in the spaces in between over the coming weeks. So this year I'll be in the States for June and July and the first week of August. So yeah, it's going to be a different time of year because I'm either over normally in the spring or in the fall. So this time I'm going to be much more up in um, Northern USA, I think. So exciting, the the whole planning and the season coming together like this, you and Grant, of course. And I was just thinking of Michelle, who has nothing to plug today. I was thinking <laughs> about, um, now, what what is your, it's the Chalet Motel, is it, that you own? Uh, 
<laughs> yes. And that's what I spend my summers doing. Well, so I, as I was you thinking guys- that. <laughs> I just think because, you know, we're, we're talking about events and things like that. And I know there's some events that are close to you. There's that one, what do they call it? Sturgis? Yeah, yeah Sturgis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's the you other one, the, the off-road one. Uh, I don't know. There's, there's, there's a couple of things, but not to mention that, but it's or not only that rather, but it's, it's an incredible place to ride. I mean, you've, you've got an amazing place around you. So if somebody was coming to your area, how would they find your location to stay at? Well, thank you, Jim. That's very kind of you. It's chaletmotelcuster.com. And yes, we're we're open seasonally. So I, and I'm sorry, I, I should think more business oriented. I, I wear two very separate hats apparently between business and motorcycling. <laughs> so um, yeah, so we I'm not open right now. We open uh, the 15th of May this year and close uh, the 15th of October. So open for five months. And um, yeah, it's a beautiful place to ride. And, and I'm hopeful maybe, you know, Sam, if you're traveling the Northern U.S., or parts of it this year, just keep me on the radar. Would be great to have you in my part of the world for a moment. It would be absolutely brilliant to link up with you. And I have not been to South Dakota either. So um, if I land on your doorsteps, please have, have a list of you've got to <laughs> see this ready waiting for me. Uh, well, that's a given for anybody that comes through this part of the world, but you'll have a room waiting and a whiskey. So Oh, now you're talking. Now he's coming for sure. He's on his way. Yeah. (laughs) Thank you very much, everyone. That was great fun, as always. Really enjoyed it. Thank you so much. Thank you, you, Jim. Cheers. Thanks, guys. Cheers. Cheers, everybody. Well, that wraps things up for this month's ARR Raw. And thank you to my co-host, Sam Manicom, starting with Sam Manicom. He lives in the UK. He's got four books and audiobooks that follow his eight-year motorcycle journey around the world. His website, sam-manicom.com. Shirley Hardy Ricks and Brian Ricks are from Australia. They also publish their own books on motorcycle travel. You can buy them wherever you get e-books at their website, aussiesoverland.com.au. Michelle Lampfair is a moto traveler that also has a couple of great moto travel books, The Butterfly Route and Tips for Traveling Overland in Latin America. Both of those titles available on Amazon. As well, she has a motel for us motorcyclists and anyone else called the Chalet Motel. You can find out more about that at chaletmotelcuster.com. And of course, Grant Johnson is from Horizons Unlimited, which is the hub, literally, for our adventure motorcycling community. Horizons Unlimited has tons of up-to-date travel information, as well as a huge forum of dedicated travelers that connect you with other travelers. They also put on the hub meets around the world. You can see a worldwide list of hub meets at their website, horizonsunlimited.com. Special thanks to our producer, Elizabeth Martin. My name is Jim Martin. Thank you for listening. Join us again next time. Oh, and don't forget, if you want to get uh, your question or a topic suggestion in here, drop by our website. You can also look at the show notes. I have some more information in here. You can make comments on the show notes. AdventureRiderRadio.com.